Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we have been blessed already with uh, this worship service as we've heard the songs and the praises that have gone up to the throne of grace, and we pray that that blessing would continue as we open your holy word. We pray that you would speak to us, that the Holy Spirit, the divine teacher, would attend us this morning, guide our thoughts and our minds, for we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, This morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, and the Bible indicates that there is a final conflict that is going to come upon us before Jesus comes the second time. Revelation chapter 13 Verse 1, then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Here's a artist's depiction of the beast. You can see it here. Uh, like I said during the children's story, this is not a beast that you see in your local zoo. I, I go to the Anchorage Zoo. We have a season pass to it and take Hudson there regularly. Uh, this is symbolic. You don't find a seven-headed beast anywhere. And it has these characteristics. The lion, the bear and the leopard. And interestingly enough, if you want to see a parallel chapter to this, read Daniel chapter 7 because you see the exact same animals in reverse order in Daniel chapter 7. One scholar said that Daniel is looking forward and John is looking backwards. But this is an amalgamated beast comprised of all of these pagan powers in Daniel chapter 7. This beast is a sea beast, and the Bible indicates who gave this beast his power. The dragon. The dragon gives this beast his power, and later on in Revelation chapter 13, it indicates that the dragon is none other than the serpent, and Satan. So ultimately behind this beast is the devil. Look in verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? who is able to make war with him. This is a prophecy that is coming to fruition right now. There is a beast power that all the world is wondering after and worshiping, 
And then in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, this is the cliff note version, by the way, there is another beast that comes up out of the sea in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. So you have a sea beast and a land beast, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all authority of the first beast in the presence and causes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The Bible indicates that in the end of time, there will be two world superpowers. And these two world superpowers will join together, and it says that the second beast will cause people to worship the first beast. Now, I read an interesting article a number of years ago when I was going through seminary, and it was written during the 1970s, and it indicated that our understanding of Revelation chapter 13 should be reinterpreted because there was no way that in the end there would be two world superpowers because of communism. And it's interesting because right now, this interpretation of Revelation chapter 13 is more accurate than ever. Fascinating how this happens. When we go down to verse 13, it says, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by the signs of those who are granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? To be now, in summary, this is what's going to take place. In the end of time, worship is going to be a key issue. Everyone is going to be worshiping someone. Everyone is going to be spiritual in the sense that worship is going to be taking place. The Bible indicates that all the world will be worshiping this beast. And if you don't worship the beast, there will be fear tactics that will be put into place that you will not be able to buy or sell, or ultimately there'll be a death penalty if you don't worship. That's what the Bible indicates in Revelation chapter 13. So there's fear, there's worship, and there's a host of individuals, a universal movement to give glory to this beast. Now this is the context in which Revelation chapter 14 plays a role. So skip one chapter over, or just turn one chapter over to Revelation chapter 14. While this is taking place, while there is a convergence, uh, a unity that is taking place in the world, there is a final message that is to go to the world before Jesus comes. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, this is known as the first angel's message. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Notice that this message is to go to how many people? The entire world. So while there is a unity taking place on one side, a false type of unity centered around beast worship, 
The Bible calls people to worship the Creator, and notice the sequence of how this takes place. It says, fear God, give glory to Him, and worship Him. It's interesting because in Revelation chapter 13, there's fear of the beast, there's giving glory to the beast, and there's worshiping the beast. But in Revelation chapter 14, God is calling for a message to worship the Creator, to give glory to Him, and to fear God. I'd like to go through each one of these verbs uh, this morning as we unpack the first angel's message. The first one is fear God. I wondered in my study this week why this didn't begin with love God, but it begins with fear God. And when you unpack it a little bit more, here it is in the Andrews Study Bible. It says, fearing God means to revere, and I've highlighted the second one, to respect and hold in awe. The emphasis of the first angel's message seems to indicate by implication that there will be a lack of respect for God in the end of time, just by the emphasis of this, to respect God. I looked up the definition of respect. It says it's a feeling of deep admiration for someone. Respect means to demonstrate high regard for someone. Now, th this is an emotion, a, a feeling of admiration, respect for God. I have in my library a book that I highly recommend uh, for, for married couples. It's a book from Dr. Emerson Egerich. Uh, it's called Love and Respect. How many of you have read this book? Oh, it's a great book. Highly recommended for all married couples. It's, it's based on a biblical principle. And it is on this notion that what women want and desire in a relationship, according to this, this book, is, is love. What do you think it's... What, Oh, what men want. Respect, that's the whole thesis of his book. And according to him, when a woman feels unloved, how does she respond? Oh, the men knew this right away. Okay, I'm, I'm front row. All right, they, they said, with, with disrespect. And how does a man respond when he is disrespected? By being unloving. It's fascinating because I watched a seminar by this doctor, and he said that uh, when you ask a man whether his wife loves him, there's no question usually. They say, oh, my wife loves me. I have no question about that. But when you ask the man, does, my, does your wife respect you? They're like, they have to think about that. And then sometimes they say, oh, I don't think so. She loves me but doesn't respect me. Now, there can be arguments made each way. This is not indicating that women do not want to be respected. But from an emotional standpoint, it's interesting. It says his love, according to the book, his love, the husband's love, motivates her respect. Her respect motivates his love. And he gives an account of how this uh, relationship is spiraling out of control. And so the wife decides that she's going to stop the vicious cycle. And she writes a card to her husband and says, honey, I want to let you know I respect you. Whoa. So he takes that card and goes to his wife and says, did you really mean that? Did you really mean that? And uh, he, 
he talks about how that caused him to be motivated to, to, to love or to act out in love to his wife. And it's interesting, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, so each husband should love his wife as much as he loves himself. And notice what the next part says. Each wife should what? Respect her husband. Now, Paul knew this intuitively, intuitively. Now, we live in an age today where we say people should be given unconditional what? Love. But have you ever heard about this concept of unconditional respect? Sounds heretical, doesn't it? Because it seems to indicate we live in a culture today where respect should be what? Earned. But according to this book, it indicates that in a marriage relationship, respect is a form of love to the husband. And when we choose to give unconditional respect, it causes a beautiful cycle to take place of respect and love. It's fascinating because in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, there is a relationship between fearing God, respecting God, and keeping His commandments. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, fear God and keep His commandments. We get a different feeling, don't we, when we hear respect God versus love God? It's, it's a different posture in that way. Of course, this respect is not motivated from fear, it's motivated from love, but it's interesting that the worldwide message that is to go out before Jesus comes is an emphasis on respect, respecting God. Do we live in a culture today where God is disrespected? I was watching a, an interview and it was a, of a comedian. He's a, he's a funny man, uh, makes fun of everybody. And he was talking about how he was invited to the White House to meet with the president. And he said that because of his respect for the office of the president, he decided to wear a three-piece suit, even though it was like 98 degrees outside. It's fascinating how respect affects behavior. Isn't that interesting? Your respect affects behavior. Fear God and keep His commandments. So the first part of the first angel's message is to have a certain awe, reverence, and respect for God. Fear God and keep His commandments. There's a relationship between the two. The second part is to give glory to Him. The first one is an emotional state a sense of respect, the feeling of admiration. The second one is an action, to give glory to Him. In other words, the, the attitude, the mindset, causes us to do something for God, to give glory to Him. I used to think that giving glory to God meant like this glory that emanates, this, this light. That's what I think of when you think of glory. Uh, when you look in the Bible, it's actually more than that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? Do all to the glory of God. In other words, 
This is talking about lifestyle. Got kind of quiet in here all of a sudden, right? All right, lifestyle. In other words, our respect and adoration and love for God affects the way that we live our lives on a very practical day-to-day basis. What we eat and what we do with our bodies is an important part of how we give glory to God. In other words, in the end of time, there will be a false gospel that will emphasize a type of relationship with God that says, look, the commandments don't mean anything anymore, and furthermore, you can live any way that you want. And the emphasis of the first angel's message is saying, look, respect God. Keep his commandments. And live your life in a way that glorifies him. Fear God, give glory to him. Not because we have to, but because we want to in response to God's initiative. Let's go to our third part and worship him. There's a whole theology of worship that I won't get into this morning, but worship is so core to what it means to be a human being. It is that that sense, no matter what culture you go into the world, there is this desire to worship. And this is from William Temple. He summarizes worship in this way. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of the mind with His truth, the purifying of the imagination with His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, the surrender of will to His purpose, all this gathered up in adoration, the most motion of which our nature is capable. Worship, when we come and truly worship God, it is the coalescing of everything that we are, body, mind, and soul is in that worship. Fear God, give glory to Him, and worship the Creator is the clarion call in the end of time. Now, I have this ellipse on the screen, and when you think of the verbs, fear God, give glory to Him, and worship Him, on the spectrum of God's part and man's part, where does the emphasis of the first angel's message lie? Who is the one that's supposed to fear God? All right. Who's the one that's supposed to give glory to Him? Me. Who's the one that's supposed to worship? I scratched my head when I read that, and I looked at it on this spectrum. Fear God, give glory to Him, and worship Him is is on this side of the theological spectrum, of man's part, our response to God's initiative. Now, let's back up a little bit. We'll come back to this whole idea of the first angel's message here in a minute, but when you look at Christian theology for the last 2,000 years, and even in our own community of faith in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a lot of the tension and theological controversy can be stemmed back to this whole idea of how much of salvation is God's part and how much of salvation is man's part. Let me give you an illustration of this. You have this Calvinistic idea of predestination. Our friends, the Reformed, 
faith, they have this idea of predestination. How much of salvation is God's part in predestination? 100%. In other words, man has zero contribution to salvation. We don't even have the ability to choose. God chooses for us. It is called the elect. God chooses who's going to be saved, and God chooses who's going to be lost. And what this has done, it has taken man's part totally out of the equation. Now, some people uh, may think of predestination. Oh, how can people believe that? But we need to recognize that this was a reaction to legalism. This was a reaction to righteousness by works. So Calvin and Luther came along and said, look, man has zero contribution to salvation. It is all about what God does. And this was a very uh, assuring uh, reality for people that were struggling with legalism to say, look, God does literally everything. Even human choice is not a reality. It is a figment of our imagination. We have on this side, we have man's part, and one example of that is our friends, the Catholics. Uh, I did a paper in the seminary. Uh, it was called Protestant Theological Heritage was the class, and I did a 30-page paper analyzing the, the discussion between Luther and Erasmus. Erasmus was a Catholic, and Luther was a Protestant, and they were battling together about who, how much merit is attributed to salvation. And Erasmus came up with this fascinating argument, and he said, look, man's part has little merit. I remember putting that in quotations in my paper. What does that mean? It means that man's choice has a little credit and contribution towards salvation. So man's part has some credit towards salvation, and Luther thought that was the most heretical thing that we can ever think of. But Erasmus is saying, like, look, you're, what you're doing is eliminating free choice and free will. So you can see that this discussion goes back and forth. Which, which is which? Is it all about what God does, or does man's part have some contribution towards salvation? And it was not until John Wesley came along and gave a wonderful contribution to the theological discussion between these two polar opposites, and it was this idea of prevenient grace. Prevenient grace, this is according to Woodrow Wilson, sinners do not naturally seek for God, but that he earnestly seeks for them to come into a redemptive relationship with him. Such gracious seeking creates a proto-renewal, which enables the convicted soul to respond to God's redemptive offer. What is that saying? According to John Wesley and Prevenient Grace, even our choice comes from God. Every desire comes from God. Your desire to come to church, your desire to pray, your desire to seek Him, that is not because we're good. That all comes from God. And so when we choose God, who ultimately gets the credit? God does. So what John Wesley was able to do was preserve free will, but give all the credit to God. What this illustrates is that when we come to these tensions in theology between two things that seem at odds with each other, the real key is not saying either or, but both and. 
The real key is not to reject one to the negation or to the acceptance of the other, but to say, okay, how are these two related between each other? Now, it's fascinating because in the first angel's message, the emphasis is on God's, or I should say, the response to God's initiative. In other words, there will be a theology that exists out there that says, you know what? You don't have to do anything. In other words, the absence of human credit also means the absence of human action. And this first angel's message indicates that God's people in the end of time must have a proper understanding of the relationship between faith and works, between God's part and man's part. That is the key. And even in our church today, the Seventh-day Adventist church, there is a, an internal discussion that has been going on since the inception of this movement between how much is God's part and how much is man's part. For instance, I heard a sermon that was from a prominent preacher. I won't give his name, because, I, but, but he, he gave a theology that was emphasizing God's part. And he used the illustration of Moses at the Red Sea. And there is a statement in the account in the book of Genesis saying that God told Ma Moses to do what? To stand still and see the salvation of God. And the whole sermon was built on this thing of let go and let God. You've heard that before, all right? Let go and let God. In other words, all we have to do in the plan of salvation is stand still and let God part the Red Sea. So it was an emphasis that was more over here on God's part. Now, the contrarian to that will say, how did they get to the Red Sea? Did they get to the Red Sea by standing still? They had, to, they had to walk there. So the contrarian to that will emphasize more on man's part. Now, I'm not saying that in certain contexts we tend to emphasize one, one part and the other part. I do that in my own messages. Some sermons I emphasize God's part. Some sermons I emphasize man's part. And whenever you hear a sermon on prayer, right, Bible study, service, it's an emphasis over here. When, anytime we emphasize what God has done or is doing, it's an emphasis over there. And I think that all of us in our own experience tend to kind of gravitate toward one side or the other. And what we need to do is go to the Bible and understand the relationship between the, these two realities. Now, one thing is very clear so that I'm not misunderstood this morning. Man's part has zero credit in salvation. In other words, it does not earn us anything, right? So there is no credit that's involved. However, we do still have a role to play in the process. Um, let's see here. Now, let, this is a, an example of this. It's it's an enigma. Now, what do we mean by that? It is a mystery, the relationship between God's part and man's part. And let's go to this text, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. We quote this all the time, don't we? And this illustrates 
the enigma between faith and works, between God's part and man's part. We quote this, I say it in my prayers many times, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, for it is who? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What is that emphasizing? God's part. I mean, don't we love that passage? For it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's an emphasis on God's part. We quote this and we say, oh, God is going to do everything in and through us. However, read the verse right before it. Have you ever read the verse right before it? It is quite troubling, actually. I've struggled. I've wondered whether I should even preach this sometimes. Here it is. Look at this. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Look at this part. What's the next word there? Well, what is it? Work. Wow. Mm. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Look at the enigma of those two passages that are placed right next to each other. Obviously, Paul is not saying that our works have any credit. However, he's implying that there is a certain cooperation that needs to take place of God working in and through us. There is a relationship between the two. Now, I read this book that I had to read. I was forced to do it for my doctoral studies. This is a great book, by the way. It's called How People Grow. And this is from uh, our friends in the evangelical community of faith. And I was, um, to be honest, I was skeptical. I said, oh, what do evangelicals have to teach us about sanctification by anyways? I was like, oh. So I read it with some skepticism. I'll be honest with you. It's by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Towson. But as I read it more and more, I was like, this is fascinating, fascinating. And this quotation jumped out at me because he's commenting on Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. I put the whole quote here, or the majority of the quote, so you can see it in its context because this was a compelling analogy. I've never heard of evangelical make this type of analogy. It was fascinating. Look at this. We work out our own salvation, meaning we execute our responsibilities and growth. All the while, in mysterious and often invisible ways, God works in us, sorry about the typo, for his purposes. This co-laboring is not at all as if God is simply doing things to us like a surgeon operating on an anesthetized patient lying on an operating table. And here's the analogy that it gives. It is more like certain forms of brain surgery in which the patient is awake and working with the surgeon, telling him what he is experiencing as the surgeon probes and cuts one way, then another. We are partners in our own spiritual surgery. I like that. I like that. I think that analogy actually fits more to the biblical model of cooperation with God in this process. Why is it that he has put salvation in this way? It's because of love. He respects our free will. And so, at every step of the process, he says, David, do you want to go further? And by the grace of God, I say, yes. want to cooperate with God through this process. And in my own experience, just being fully transparent in here, 
I have gone on this, my own pendulum swing of, of God's part, man's part. Sometimes I've gotten over here and emphasized a little bit over here. And what I found is that the beauty of really being biblical in our understanding of the relationship between these two realities causes an internal harmony and peace as we try to grapple with the tension between God's part and man's part in the Christian experience. And the key word really is cooperation. Cooperation. Am I willing to cooperate with what God wants to do in my life and your life? We have no doubt about God's initiative, amen? There's no doubt about that, about what he wants to do. The, old, the issue is the sinner's lack of cooperation. And this is a quote from God's Amazing Grace. Human effort avails nothing without divine power, and without human endeavor, divine effort is with many of no avail. To make God's grace our own, we must act our part. Very fascinating, the framing of these two realities. And here is the closing quotation that I pray on a regular basis. I've shared this before. This is from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 142. The will must be placed on the side of God's will. You are not able of yourself to bring your purposes and desires and inclinations into submission to the will of God. But if you are willing to be made willing, God will accomplish the work for you. Beautiful statement. Willing to be made willing. The desire to desire. There's so many times I have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I know that you want to do your part. Help me to do mine. Help me to be willing to be made willing. Help me to desire to desire to desire to desire. And I say, Lord, I don't even want to. Help me to want to. That's the ultimate prayer that we can only pray. And then God will work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. How many of you with me want to say, Lord, I want to pray this prayer. Help me willing to be made willing. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for grace, for prevenient grace that recognizes the reality that we are so lost without you, that we can't even desire to desire. Lord, create in us the desire. May you initiate in us a deeper desire for you. And Father, as we navigate through our own Christian experience between understanding the relationship between God's initiative and our human response, we pray that you would give us your divine spirit to guide us. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.